0: you love your work? Do you think it's possible? Well, you're about to find out. It's time for 48 Days to the Work You Love with Dan Miller on the 48 Days Online Radio Show. Whether you need a professional tune-up or a work overhaul, this is the program for you. Now, here's your host, Dan Miller. Well, we're going to take care of business a little bit differently today. Rather than just answering questions, I've got a theme that I want to unpack for us. That theme is, What are the Unusual Habits of High Achievers? going to be looking at what some of the odd eccentric things that famous people have done to add to their creativity. Hey, this podcast, one of our sponsors today is Audible Podcast. You can go to audiblepodcast.com slash 48 days to get your free book to get you started on being unusual. You know, I have a lot of people ask me about what they need to do to increase their level of success. And I always tell them, read great books. There's nothing I know of that will unlock your unusual success, like reading great books. Now you can read or listen to them. And I'm going to be giving you a hot title here in a little bit, a highly recommended book that you can get from audible podcast. But I don't know of anything that's added to the opportunities that I've been able to experience like reading great books. I grew up in a house where we didn't have radio or TV. And of course, everybody thought that was a horrible hardship at the time. But in retrospect, I think that drew me to books that have served me extremely well over the years and continue to do so. We're going to be looking at what are the things that you can do that are unusual. I've got a quotation here from Robin Sharma who says to have the results only 5% have You need to do the things that only 5% are willing to do. Now, there's a lot of things that fall into that 5% category. I knew when I started writing books that 95% of authors never make more than $40,000 a year. Did that deter me? No, not at all. I simply asked myself, gee, how difficult can it be to put myself in that 5%? Most authors just do the same kind of things. I'm going to do things that most authors don't do. And that has in fact opened the door to some rather extraordinary successes in the world of writing. But now most authors, I'm generalizing, but most authors write a manuscript, give it to their publisher, and then they go sit in a lawn chair by the mailbox waiting on those fat royalty checks to show up. Well, they're usually sorely disappointed because that's not a very good plan. Now, if you want to make $40,000 a year as an author, just do that. Write great books, send a manuscript to your publisher and hope that enough trickles through the royalty system so you can make $40,000 a year. That wouldn't be very appealing to me. So I'm going to do things that most authors don't do. When Wisdom Meets Passion came out, before the book was ever released, we had a whole suite of ancillary products that we were going to offer with that book as a package. So yeah, you can go to Amazon and get the book for, God, I don't really know what it is, probably 18 bucks or something like that. We had a package of $77. It included, and, and still does, it includes a hardback book, not the paperback, hardback book, autographed by Jared and me, the authors. It includes a link to a 44 minute bonus audio, not the book, but just a bonus audio that talks about ways that you can discover your own passion. It includes an Ubuntu medallion. Now, this is a beautifully designed medallion. Jared designed the medallion. It has a hole in it, so it can be hung around your neck, which it is, but he designed it using the African concept of Ubuntu. It has the Ubuntu tree on there. Ubuntu means we can do more together than we can do individually. We love that concept. We talk about that in the book. The medallion is hung with a string that's carefully knotted, has a couple beads on there, every knot means something, it was done by ladies from Somalia. So, very significant. We had with that a field guide for Wisdom Meets Passion. And then all we can go through is a study guide and really help you unpack your own application of wisdom meets passion. And also a beautifully done photography display of quotations from the book superimposed over beautiful pictures that my son-in-law Nathan took. So we got that whole package for $77. Now, you can't get that from Amazon. You can't get it in Barnes & Noble or Books A Million. You can't get it anywhere else from us. That's one of the unusual things that we do as an author. And those are the kind of things done by anybody who's getting extraordinary success. That 5%, we know the same thing is true for speakers and coaches. 95% never make more than $40,000 a year. You want to put yourself in the 5%, you want to make $150,000, 200000 just do things that only 5% of the people in those professions are doing. Now, here's one of the things you don't want to do. I just heard about this again. I've talked about this before, this idea that keeps popping up its ugly head about multitasking. We hear people that are multitasking. You know, they have six computer screens open and they're writing a manuscript and they're answering emails and they're getting text in and tweeting. Come on. Do you really think that you can do all those things? I mean, I think it's a myth and more and more, we're now hearing stories and getting research that in fact does show it to be a myth. Now I've talked about the fact that it takes about 18 minutes to get back fully engaged in a task once you've had an interruption. So if you take a phone call or you read a text that came in or a tweet, or you see that an email came in, ding, you got an email and you get, go over and handle that. It takes about 18 minutes to get back to full level of engagement in a specific project. Well, guess what? Many people go through their entire day, their entire week without ever having an uninterrupted 18 minute stretch. Now think about it. Think about some of the, I mean, you may have this kind of a work setup where you're working in a cubicle. Can you go 18 minutes without having a phone call, a text, a tweet, an email, somebody pops their head in your office. Can you really do that? If you can't, I think you're killing your creativity i think you're killing your maximum productivity in doing so now knowing that it takes 18 minutes to recover and switch back to a task once you're interrupted here's another thing that happens when you are multitasking there's a british study that came out recently that looks at iq now they're tracking iq Men's IQ drops 15 points every time they multitask. That's a big drop. I mean, that's enough to take you from the Mensa Society to an ordinary dude. 15 points if you're trying to multitask. Women's IQ drops 10 points every time they multitask. Now, this is something interesting they added as part of their study. Your IQ drops 5 points if you're stoned now that's a pretty interesting juxtaposition so men's iq drop 15 iq points if you are trying to multitask it drops five points if you're stoned so if you're trying to convince yourself that you're doing great work and you're multitasking you might as well just go to work stoned you're going to have better performance and your boss ought to ask you to get stoned instead of multitasking so there's an interesting scenario. Well, don't multitask. Now, here's some of the daily routines of rock stars of achievement. Now again, some of this comes from a blog. Now I've added some things to it, but some of it came from a blog from Robin Sharma. And he is he has studied some of the daily routines of famous people. I want to share some of those with you. These are the things that people who have pretty notable success have done. Ernest Hemingway used to get up at 5.30 every morning to write. Even if he'd been out drinking the night before, he wrote as a practice, not just when he felt inspired. Now, we've got some other authors in the list here, but I want to come back to that because I have my own practices for writing. But he got up at 5.30 every morning to write. No matter what he was doing the night before, it was a discipline. I was just working with a gentleman today, a coaching client, and he said, boy, I've always wanted to write, but I just, you know, I've never found that I really enjoy it that much. And I thought, well, that's an interesting kind of scenario because I'm not sure that writing well is just a result of enjoying it. Now, I happen to enjoy writing, but if I waited on just feeling good about it every time I probably wouldn't write nearly as much as I do. Writing to me is a discipline. I write at least 1,000 words a day. Now, if you're used to writing a blog, a blog is typically three to 500 words. So, you know, it's a couple lengthy blogs. But I write at least that much content just as part of a discipline every day. Whether I feel like it or not, you know, whether it tickles my fancy or not has little to do with it. Now, like most things, once you develop it as a habit, it becomes like brushing your teeth, so it becomes easier, which also addresses another thing that I keep hearing about, and that is this idea of passion. Yes, I wrote the book, Wisdom Meets Passion. Yes, I do believe that you ought to follow your passion, and if you're really following your passion, money shows up unexpectedly. I really believe all that, but at the same time, I want to add a quick note of caution there, because a lot of people get stuck just waiting on their passion to show up they're going to sit on a stump and hope for that bolt of lightning or wait for the road to Damascus kind of experience. So, Oh, wow, this is my purpose, my calling, my destiny, my mission, my passion. Wow. It shows up full blown. Okay. Now I know what I'm going to do the rest of my life. I don't find that that usually is the case. Passion is more often developed than it is discovered. That means you may not really know what you're passionate about. My advice is get in the game start doing some things, get involved when you're doing something and realize that you do it well, that it helps make the world a better place, that you can make extraordinary money doing it. Guess what? You start to develop a passion for it. I mean, think about it in terms of a sport. You know, did Tiger Woods just love golf when he was five years old and just say, I'd never want to do anything but this. I doubt it. I think he had some parental encouragement, to practice and practice and practice. And as he was more and more successful, I suspect that he developed a passion for it. I think that's the way that passion develops. And I think that's a realistic way to approach it. Well, let me go back to my list here. The things that are daily routines of people who have extraordinary levels of achievement. Benjamin Franklin. Now, this is an interesting note. He sat naked every morning in fresh air for his bath which an air bath which he swore fueled his energy and creativity he also listed 13 character traits he wanted to build and measured how he lived against each of them every night before he slept he was very disciplined about those 13 character traits you can look those up easily he would do he would focus on one a week go through the 13 so he would have each one come to the forefront four times a year but it was those 13 character traits That he focused on i may pull those up and we'll include those in a later podcast but the interesting thing is that every morning he would sit in fresh air for his bath naked i haven't tried that i'm going to try some of these things i haven't tried that but i'd have to have the temperature pretty right i'm not sure i'd want to just uh do that regardless of what the temperature was of course we can control it in the house but i sure wouldn't want to try it outside much of the year well Mazri warrior, chief technology officer at Cisco systems, regular digital detoxes where she unplugs from technology to reboot her brain and replenish her creative reserves. Now I run into more and more people who are doing that these days, digital detox, where they unplug from all technology, no computer, no cell phone. I think that's probably a healthy experience. Um, let me try that. I mean, I do that on certain days, but I haven't done it for prolonged periods of time. Leonardo da Vinci slept via small naps throughout the day versus sleeping eight hours straight. A lot of people are doing that. A lot of people you hear, I mean, Michael Hyatt talks about the importance of his naps. I rarely go through a day without a nap. I love taking naps. Now, here's the deal. It's not just because... You know, I'm an, I'm, I'm an old worn out guy. I've always enjoyed naps. But when I eat lunch, I usually work for about an hour after lunch. And then I'm getting a little nodded off. Well, what do people do when they're sitting in a cubicle? Jeez, you go get a, a Diet Coke or something to energize you artificially with caffeine or whatever, or pop a couple no-dos. I don't do that. Or you just push through. I mean, how often have you heard people talk about just pushing through that period of time in the afternoon where they get kind of sleepy-eyed. I don't do that. I don't push through. I go lay down. Man, I lay down. I mean, I used to pull the covers up over me. I read for about three minutes. Boom, I go to sleep. About 20 minutes. And I wake up. Oftentimes, I have the solution to something I've been working on. I have renewed energy. I have renewed creativity. I come back and write with a renewed Energy and focus, I mean, I love that. What I, what I waste in time, and certainly it's not a waste, but what I give up in time, I gain in productivity. Trust me, I see people sitting around who four o'clock in the afternoon can hardly hold their eyes open. How productive do you think that you are if you are having a hard time staying awake? I don't do that, I go take a nap. Well, Leonardo da Vinci, and that brings me to the book that I wanna recommend. This is the book. I love this book, How to Think Like Leonardo da Vinci, Seven Steps to Genius Every Day by Michael Gelb. Now, that's one of those you can go. I already checked to make sure you can go to audiblepodcast.com slash 48 days. And that's my recommendation for this week. Pull up How to Think Like Leonardo da Vinci. I love that book. I've gone back to it many, many, many times. I have it book noted i have my little post-it notes all the way through there all the little different tips leonardo da vinci was an amazing amazing genius and all the different things that he invented created thought of way before his time on some of the things but go pick up that book again you can go to autopodcast.com slash 48 days and get how to think like leonardo da vinci Well, Peter Tchaikovsky, he took daily walks, which shifted his mindset from the mundane to the original. Nelson Mandela talks about walking entire days for the exercise and mind-clearing effects the discipline would deliver. If you've ever seen the movie Gandhi, he would walk hundreds of miles, both for just the discipline. Obviously, he was making a statement, but just the discipline... And the cleansing that walking allows. And I love to walk. I just listened to a podcast. Our, Our buddy John Dumas from Entrepreneur on Fire interviewed Fran Tarkington, the old NFL pro. Fran is 73 years old. And he talked about one of the things that he does to keep his alertness and productivity high. He walks at least 25 miles a week. I thought, wow, how cool is that? 73 years old, walks 25 miles a week. A walking, Steve Jobs would fast for extended periods of time, no food, recognizing that it created a sense of euphoria within him that motivated his dazzling output of ideas. He also loved carrots sometimes he'd go with doing nothing but eating carrots some one time he ate so many carrots that his skin turned turned orange, and people were concerned about him because he was just eating carrots, but he would fast because that depriving his brain of food would put him in kind of a euphoric state. And I can see that happening. Maya Angelou writes in a cheap and Spartan hotel room that she rents. She awakens at home around 5.30 a.m. every morning, has coffee with her husband, then shows up at the hotel room to do seriously productive work by 7 a.m. It's lonely and it's marvelous. Now I've read repeatedly that she does that. I can't imagine going to a Spartan hotel, hotel room to me somehow that that that's an unnecessary hardship i mean i love walking back across our yard to the sanctuary where i work but it is not a spartan hotel room i mean it's i have very carefully had somebody help me decorate in my office the the deep burgundies and browns that i have in here i find very soothing the beautiful wood for all my bookcases with the backdrop lighting in that, things of significance like eagle statues that people have given me over the years and model cars that I have in here and then the window that overlooks a, a little water feature with the, and I've got a bird feeder right outside and birds come up there and turkeys come up there and if the turkeys, if the bird feeder runs out of food, I, I, when I fill the bird feeder in the morning, I purposely overfill it And I include a lot of cracked corn in the mixture that I make for the birds. The cracked corn is primarily for the turkeys. So I purposely overfill and drop it on the ground. So the turkeys come up and eat. And we've had over the years, just multiple batches. I'm not sure what you call a bunch of, it's a litter or whatever it is, of baby turkeys, but we have them 12, 13 at a time and they come up and the mama and papa turkeys, if the feeder runs low they will come up and peck on the window in my office the window is is low overlooking the water feature and they will come up and peck on the window if i'm low on food but now so that's the kind of environment that i'm in so it's not solitary confinement so that i have nothing to distract me at all. I mean, I like the richness of my office. That helps stimulate my writing. And of course I'm surrounded by my books. I can't imagine going to a hotel room without a book in there. And when I write, I'm constantly pacing in my office, pulling things off the shelf to pull up great quotations in a book that I read three years ago or get an idea out of how to think like Leonardo da Vinci that I know I read five years ago. I mean, that's how I write, so it's much different. But that's what Maya Angelou does, and apparently that's worked pretty well for her. Beethoven loved his coffee. He was meticulous about making his own coffee. 60 beans per cup is what he would use. Now, there's a lot of people, a lot of elite performers who have used coffee as a productivity tool. Now, that would not be me. This is probably hard to believe, but I've never had a cup of coffee in my life. Now, this is not some kind of a strict dietary thing or some uh, religious nut. Or uh, it's, I love the smell of coffee. I just have never found it appealing. And I've never had a cup of coffee in my life. My parents drank coffee, so it wasn't something that I grew up with. All of our kids drink coffee joanne and i somehow just missed that we neither of us have ever had a cup of coffee have never had a desire to No, we drink tea but no coffee but anyway a lot of people do use coffee some people to extremes there was a french novelist and playwright whose name was balzac who died back in 1850 yet he was a very odd guy he worked very slowly but with incredible focus and dedication. Here's what he, he would prefer to do. Typically, he'd eat a light meal at about five or six o'clock in the afternoon. Then he'd sleep till midnight. Then he would get up and he'd work hour after hour after hour, fueled by innumerable cups of coffee. He would often work for 15 hours or more at a stretch. Uh, one time he claimed to have worked for 48 hours with only three hours of rest in there. But we're told i've read at other places that balzac would drink sometimes 50 cups of coffee a day now i'm not sure how your kidneys would handle that but um, he, he also destroyed himself healthwise his I, I don't i'm not promoting his habits as leading to extraordinary performance he was certainly notable in what he did but he died a very early death married very late had screwed up relationships finally got married and died five months later at the age of 51 so we won't hold him up as a model here but uh, beethoven and others certainly sometimes people are meticulous about what they drink as part of their extraordinary performance point out that i kind of think back i'm sorry i brought that whole thing up It didn't sound healthy or admirable at all did it well mick jagger mick jagger the rolling stones he exercises six days a week Includes ballet, Pilates, yoga. He says that being that fit rewires his brain to fight fear, reduces the stress response, and multiplies stamina. Have you seen that dude lately on stage? You know how old Mick Jagger is? He's 70. He's 70 years old. Man, he can dance and rock on the stage, you know, like an 18-year-old. Well, he's doing some things to keep himself that healthy and looks like it's working. Stephen King writes every single day of the year, does not get up from the pursuit of his craft until his daily quota of 2,000 words has been met. Now, I already told you I write 1,000 words, at least. That's my quota. 2,000? Yeah, I could do that. But to do it every day of the year, I mean, I hear about a famous novelist, Janet Ivanovich, well, I don't know who does this, but I I hear about novelists who do that, who write like eight solid hours a day and turn out just novel after novel. I don't know how they do that. To me, I would lose the enjoyment of writing if I forced myself to do it that much. I mean, I love writing a thousand words a day, but I think that it would lose its appeal for me if I felt like I had to do eight hours a day. Right, I know it would. I'm still trying to get my head around that. Well, Henry David Thoreau, I mean we know a lot about him, the things that he did. he spent more than two years out in the woods, just connecting with the birds, the trees, himself. He felt like a life that was devoid of material pursuits would provide a more fruitful and enriching experience. So, from Walden Pond, where he went, his little Massachusetts cabin. Uh, this different drummer produced not only uh, a lot of great work but a philosophy on how to have a great life now i'll have to read you i mean he he we know some of the things that he did that were very very different i mean he i i wrote about him one time where he he would work six months or six weeks a year. He thought that in six weeks a year, he could make adequate income to live the rest of the year. And so the rest of the year he could devote to to thinking and just being creative in his thinking. But he wrote this, and you'll recognize this, I went to the woods because I wished to live deliberately, to front only the essential facts of life and see if I could not learn what it had to teach. And not when I came to die, discover that I had not lived. I did not wish to live what was not life. Living is so dear, nor did I wish to practice resignation unless it was quite necessary. Now listen to this sentence. I wanted to live deep and suck out all the marrow of life to live so sturdily and Spartan like as to put to rout all that was not life to cut a broad swath and shave close to drive life into a corner and reduce it to its lowest terms. Now Jared, my son, likes to use that phrase, I wanted to live deep and suck out all the marrow of life. That's one of his kind of mantras for life. We have referenced that multiple times in Wisdom Meets Passion, I want to suck all the marrow out of life. Well, Thoreau did that by living very simply. That was his technique for how to reach extraordinary levels of success. Again, these are things that only 5% of the people are going to do. And yet, if you identify what it is that you're going to do that puts you into the, that only 5% of the people are going to do chances are you can tap into something that'll release greatness in you. Thomas Edison, Edison worked every day searching for those market worthy inventions I mean, one of his areas of research included how to maximize his productivity and his thinking. One way to accomplish it, again, we come back to the nap. He says, I enjoy working about 18 hours a day besides the short cat naps I take each day. So he would average about four or five hours of sleep a night. But the way he did that was not to just go to bed for four or five hours. He would work, he would be up really in his workspace 24 hours a day often, but when he got tired, he'd lay down and take a little nap. You know, I might experiment with that sometime. Instead of going to bed for the night, just whenever I get restless or whenever I get a little sleepy, lay down and take a nap. And then when I wake up, now it's not uncommon for me to wake up during the night. I often get my best creativity at two or three in the morning and I get up and Write those things down. I don't just let them pass or try to force myself back to sleep. Again, honoring the natural cycle of sleep. Now, this is a little easier to do with children who are grown and gone. I mean, I know if you have little kids in the house, they kind of, uh, you, you try to conform your sleep patterns to theirs so at least you get that much in. But I'm at one of those seasons in life with grown children where. If I want to take a nap at 10 o'clock in the morning, I can. If I want to take one at three o'clock in the afternoon, I can. And if I want to get up at 3 a.m. and start working, then I can. And uh, I, I, it does. I mean, it, it's pretty nice to be able to have that luxury, have that flexibility where I can be productive when I feel productive. Now, one of the things that Thomas Edison did in addition to just taking those naps and I love this particular thing. He, when he would take naps, often he knew that if he went into a really deep sleep, he wouldn't remember that. And that would take him to a kind of a different place. He liked that, that space in between consciousness and sleep. There's actually a name for that. It's called hypnagogia. Hypnagogia is that state where it's really just in between when you're asleep And when you're awake, now what he would do to grab that period of time, because that's where he felt like during that lightly conscious state, that's where he would get his best ideas. And so he would sit in a chair and he would have two pie plates on the floor underneath his hands. In his hands, he would have like a ball bearing in each hand. Now, you know, you can see where this is going. As he would just go to sleep enough to totally relax, his hands would open and those ball bearings would drop in the pans and it would make a loud noise and wake him up. But that's where he would try to grab that thought in that state called hypnagogia. Now, you can look that up. It's an interesting kind of phenomenon. Now, here's here's something that I've done often with people to help them tap into what's going on with them. I love working on dreams. Now, I'm not just talking about daydreams. I'm talking about literal night dreams. I think it's a time where we can get our most creative thoughts, where God can speak messages into us, where we can get problem solutions that we otherwise don't tap into. And yet, what do we do as Americans? We just dismiss it. Oh, man, it must have been the pizza I ate last night. Well, don't do that. Pay attention to your dreams. And sometimes when I'm working with somebody and we seem to be kind of in a stalemate and stuck, I tell them, I want you to capture your dreams. Well, I never remember my dreams. Well, we're going to tap into it. It's not that difficult to do. Oftentimes, now we know that you go through pretty much 90 minute cycles in your dream state. So you go into REM sleep and it's in those periods of time you know, where you're going to dream. So we just interrupt the cycle. There's a couple ways to do this. If you set an alarm clock for 90 minutes after you go to bed, chances are pretty good you're going to hit one of those deep, deep dreaming states and where you can then identify and remember what it is you were dreaming about. I mean, everybody dreams. If somebody says, I never dream, I mean, we know they just aren't paying attention because we do dream. If you don't dream, you ultimately will hallucinate. Our mind has to dream. So it will make sure that you do, even if it has to go into hallucination to catch up on you. And of course, people who are sleep deprived, I mean, that's what they do. Ultimately, they'll start hallucinating, seeing things that aren't really there. It's still like being in a dream, dreaming state. I love working on dreams. Some of the most profound insights that I've gotten and certainly problem solutions have come from working on my own dreams. So you can set an alarm clock for 90 minutes after you go to bed, or you can do the opposite, set it for 90 minutes earlier than what you normally get up. And chances are you're going to interrupt a dream. I always encourage clients that I'm working with to keep a pad and pen by the bed with them so they can grab those thoughts immediately when they wake up or when they've just gone to sleep. I mean, make sure that you're grabbing those. A lot of times When we're working on something so hard, we almost push away the solution or the best response. And so welcome those. some, here's an example. When I'm working on something really challenging, how am I going to do this? How am I going to get this to work? I never try to finish it before I go to bed. I welcome the opportunity to leave it unfinished, leave my computer screens open or whatever, go to bed, fully confident that chances are really good that it's when I'm sleeping that I'm going to get the, get the solution that i'm looking for done that for years and years and years now here's another thing that thomas edison would do Got just a couple more of this and we're going to wrap up and make it a, a shorter podcast today thomas edison would often take his fishing rod go down to the pier cast away and then just sit there for hours now the interesting thing was he never put bait on his hook he wasn't interested in catching fish for one thing he knew that people would leave him alone if he's out there fishing But he saw that as just a great time to sit there and think. So he was reflecting on the issues of the day, his work, or whatever else came into mind. And he knew that if he looked like he was fishing, people would not bother him. So he could reflect uninterrupted. All he really wanted to do was catch ideas. That's what he was looking for, ideas. But I love that fact that he went down on the pier, threw out a fishing rod with a bobber, but no bait on not interested in catching fish, just interested in catching ideas. Now, Henry Ford, if you've been listening to my podcast for any period of time, I've talked about Henry Ford sitting for ideas. Remember how he used to do that? I mean, he was actually suspicious of executives in his company who had to work all the time. He was sure that those who were always in a flurry of activity at their desk were not being the most productive. He wanted people who would clear their desk, prop up their feet, dream some fresh ideas. If you walked to, he walked in your office and you were sitting there with your head back and your feet up on your desk, you think, "Ah, oh, man, we're going to get some breakthroughs from that guy today." He wasn't thinking, "Hey, dude, get to work. Hunch up over that computer. That's when you're most productive." No. And he himself would often go into a room and simply sit for ideas. They would ask, "What are you doing?" And he would simply say, he's sitting for ideas. That's a great concept to keep in mind. When is the last time you've done that? You know, we pride ourselves in being so busy, busy, busy all the time, all the things we're doing. I mean, we say that with a badge of honor, man, I'm so busy, I can't breathe. Really, how sad. I mean, think about it, isn't it sad to think about being so busy you can't breathe? Do you really expect to be at your very best in terms of creativity and productivity when you're just so busy keeping all the balls in the air? No, it's when you have a time to sit back. I mean, that's well, one of the one of the amazing benefits required benefits of having children or grandchildren are those times when you aren't just busy completing a schedule. When you're just going for a walk or sitting or laying in the grass, looking at the clouds, or hanging around on the beach, you know, building a sandcastle. I mean, those are wonderful times, not only to build relationships, but also for your own imagination and creativity to go in a different direction than what we often allow it in a busy workday schedule. And one of the things I want to just finish up, i Read an article in this month's issue of Wired Magazine. Now, Wired Magazine is you know, really out there on the edge in technology. It's got all kinds of things in it. I probably don't grasp 80% of what's in the magazine, but I love the magazine because of the innovative thoughts that it puts forth in terms of research, new products and things that are happening in technology, I often grab something in there and pass it on to my team and say, hey, research this and tell me what the heck they're talking about here, and things we've integrated a lot of things because of that. There was an article, the front cover of this month's issue of Wired Magazine has the picture of a 12-year-old Mexican girl, and it says the next Steve Jobs. This is an amazing story about where sometimes extraordinary success is birth and how it's birth and it merits inclusion as a wrap up to my thoughts today this little girl comes from a family who live essentially in one of the largest dumps it's a city just across the border right at the very southern tip of texas in mexico daddy of this little girl since the article, well, just before the article was written, died of lung cancer. But a very, very poor, he would dig in the garbage every day looking for scraps of aluminum, plastic, metal that could be recycled and sold for pennies to get that. This little girl came from that environment. No advantages, obviously, no access to computers. The school had very, very poor resources. She did okay in school, but was pretty bored. But her teacher, young Mexican gentleman, was bored himself. And he was looking for ways to stimulate the creative environment in that school. And he read about some studies that had been done, some of the studies done by Sugata Mitra, who has a concept that he calls minimally invasive education. Now, there's some interesting things that he's done where he put a computer through the wall of a slum in India, without really any instruction, but just letting it be there. And over a period of just a few days, how the kids accessed the computer, found information, learned things that was way beyond any expectations of what they were to learn. But he has developed this concept of minimally invasive education. This teacher in Mexico started using that, started asking, the children in the classroom, what they were interested in and giving them opportunities to learn essentially on their own. And he found that this little girl, the girl who is now on the cover of, of wired magazine, her name is Paloma found that she had an extraordinary uncanny abilities in math that pretty much any kind of math, mathematical equation that he would give her. She could complete very quickly so he decided he was going to stump her and the rest of the class by giving them a challenge. It's kind of a famous mathematical challenge that was done years ago. There was a, There's a story about Carl Gauss, the famous German mathematician who had been given this challenge as a schoolboy when one of the teachers asked the class to add up every number between one and 100. Now, I, the other night we were going to dinner with some friends and I talked about this and they were blown away. Because they couldn't get their head around even what I'm going to describe to you here. But that was the challenge that this Mexican teacher gave his class. Add up the numbers between 1 and 100. Well, most of the kids started putting together 1 plus 2 plus 3 plus 4. And they realized this is going to take a very long time. Paloma, this little 12-year-old girl, took her about 30 seconds. And she said the answer is 5,050. And he was like, how did you do that? She says, well, there are 50 pairs of 101. Now you got to kind of think this through and it's a little difficult in an audio format perhaps, but you can get, you get your head around this if I describe it. So instead of adding up, add the numbers between one, uh, one to a hundred. So instead of adding one." Plus two, plus three, plus four, plus five, and it goes on for a very long time with a whole lot of calculations. She recognized, wow! If you took the numbers at both ends, one and one hundred, that's a hundred one. Two and ninety nine, it's a hundred one. Three and ninety eight, it's a hundred one. You come all the way down. Fifty plus fifty one, it's a hundred one. You have a, you have, fifty pairs of a hundred one. You do the math. It's five thousand fifty. 50. She did that instantly. Now, they since did some mathematical testing in that class. That little girl, 12 years old, got the highest math score in the entire country of Mexico. The the, the point is, with children, certainly, and we could talk about education, which I'm not going to do, but with, with children, we so often give them a restricted environment where we teach them the right way to do things in this way only we don't accept alternate ways of coming up with a solution and thus we crimp their creativity and imagination but now think about when, when you think through to ourselves how often have we done that to ourselves where we've been taught the right way to do things and only one way You know, we were taught how to read, how to write, how to do math, how to mow the yard, gee, how to wash the car, how to deliver the newspapers, draw a picture, how to be a good Christian, get a good job, or program at a computer. I mean, think about that. We're all, we've been taught the right way to do that. What if we were given the opportunity to simply come up with the best solution in those things? That's what this teacher has done. And the results have been astounding. Well, what I want you to do is give yourself the opportunity to be extraordinary. What is it? The, what is the 5% that you do that could open up a new level of success for you? What is it that only 5% of the people are ever going to do that you could do? Perhaps something that you don't see anybody doing that you could do. Perhaps a new approach to a problem, a new way to get the results that are required. We're seeing a lot of examples of how this is being done. I love these examples of, of children who are given an open opportunity with minimally invasive education. That's a good concept in and of itself. What we need are minimally invasive workspaces as well to release our productivity. And that may involve drinking your special drink, counting your coffee beans, taking a nap in the middle of the afternoon. Can you imagine a workplace that would allow that? But see, we create workplaces much like we create school classrooms. This is the way that we've always done it. By golly, this is the way it needs to be. You need to be here at eight o'clock. You need to be here till five o'clock. That's the way we do things around here. Well, I know that sometimes it's hard to change those environments, to change them really quickly. But what we want to do is figure out what is it that you could do that's going to put you in this camp right here. Uh, Well, you know, that's our uh, Freddie Mercury tag that we add on when we talk about the success stories. What we've talked about today certainly have been unusual kind of success stories. I love looking back in history and seeing these people who have done things that are extraordinary. How have they done that? What is it that I could do? That's why I re- like reading these books about, you know, the Horatio Alger stories, but I reading about people who have done extraordinary things i like reading books like well certainly like how to think like leonardo da vinci edward da silva who talked about lateral thinking where we come up with unusual solutions to things i love things that challenge the status quo probably still i'm probably still being a rebellious guy at this stage of my life, having grown up in a pretty restrictive environment, but you know, I was always pushing the edges, looking for new ways to do things, things that weren't necessarily allowed or approved of, and yet things that I thought would lead to extraordinary kind of results. I've been privileged to uh, be exposed to books, audio programs over the years that have expanded my thinking, opened new areas of opportunities. Hey, and I know that you have too. I trust that no matter where you are in life, that you take advantage of the opportunities presented to you to do exactly the same. Well, that's going to wrap it up for this week. Just about did go our 48 minutes after all. Thought it would be shorter, but and I could talk all day about this. Next week, we'll get back to the normal answering questions again. If you got a question, shoot it in to 48days.com, the padca- podcast link. Thanks for being part of this amazing community of people who are big thinkers, extraordinary achievers, people who are finding or creating work that is meaningful, productive, and profitable.